Luke chapter number 24, that which you see on the screen, the picture there of the tomb, and that is the um, actual picture of the tomb, and eight of us from here were there just a week ago. And I'm reminded of what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 28. In fact, I sent this back to the staff. And it says, He is not here, for He is risen as He said. And that's usually where I've stopped. But the rest of the verse says, Come see the place where the Lord lay. And we got to step into there. In fact, you have to stoop down. And that's what John chapter 20 and verse 5 says. When those men went into the tomb, they had to stoop down. And you still had to stoop down to get into there. But we came to see where the Lord lay and Good news is still 2,000 years later, he's not there, he's risen. And I'm so thankful for the fact to be able to see that in the actual place and be in the place and see the place where Jesus was crucified because to, to him you were worth it. In the place where he was laid, but he came out of that grave because you were worth it to him. And I'm glad not just for seeing a sight, but to experience the reality of the resurrection. And that's what God wants for each and every one of us this morning, to experience the reality. Paul, who was saved man, wrote half the New Testament. Philippians 3 and verse 10, his prayer was that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And God wants you to know the power of his resurrection. Let's stand together, please. Luke chapter number 24, begin our reading. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. Thank you. Please be seated. In 1991, Oliver Stone produced a movie about President John F. Kennedy titled JFK. He fudged, however, on the facts of that movie and but he defended his actions by simply saying that what was most important was mythic sense or his interpretation of the facts. That historical accuracy didn't really matter. But I want to remind us, John 8 and verse 32 says, If you will know the truth, the truth will make you free. Historical accuracy is crucial to truthfulness and crucial to experiencing freedom and liberation within your life. 
Many times people live in denial, denying the truth, maybe because of how they feel, maybe because they want an alternate reality, but that's not going to liberate anybody, and no one was more focused on the truth that will make you free than the one whose name was the way, the truth, and the life. See, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus, it supports the fact that Jesus is sufficient. His atoning death for our sins, our hope of eternal life, because he arose from the dead, it tells us that Jesus is sufficient. Easter is the apex of the Christian calendar. Everything in the Christian life, it rises and falls on the empty tomb. And there's typically a flurry of activities that take place on Easter or this time of the year, from musicals in the church to chocolate rabbits to baked hams. It is easy to inadvertently focus on the non-essentials and overlook that which is most profound. Yet the straightforward, obvious things are often the most significant. There are three things that are major pillars of the Christian life. Three pillars that the Christian life is built upon. Let me give you these three words and I'll explain them. One is the incarnation. Two is the atonement. Three is the resurrection that we're talking about this morning. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, well, for many, you would know it to be Christmas. The manger. That's how God came to us, the incarnation. God stooped to become man. Then the word atonement, that's the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's God coming for us. That took place at the cross. That was just days before he was resurrected. So you have the incarnation, that's the manger, that's God coming to us. Then you have the cross, that's the atonement, that's God coming for us. But then the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection, it confirms, it proves the incarnation, it proves the atonement of Jesus Christ. The reality of Christianity, it stands or falls on the truth of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's receipt for the payment of the death of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus cried out in John 19, it is finished. And he finished paying for your sin debt and for mine. And the resurrection is God's receipt that he paid in full that sin debt. I want you to see three things about the garden tomb, that tomb. And it's interesting how the emphasis of the garden is found in the Bible. In the garden in Genesis is where man first finds his beginning. God created man. In the garden is where God lost man. Man walked away from God. But also in the garden, the first promise in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, God says that there will one day come a seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the deliverer and to bring man back to him. 
in the garden. It was a garden area in which Jesus died. It was a garden area of this tomb where Jesus was buried. A lot took place in the garden. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. There he was arrested. The garden is quite significant, but I want you to see three things surrounding this garden tomb. The first one is that the tomb was really, literally a place of burial. You say, well, isn't that what the grave is for? Well, sure. But not everyone understands the significance of the fact that he was buried. Burial means that he did die. He didn't just pass out. You don't bury someone who passes out. He literally died. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C. area, you go to the place of the eternal flame, the burial place of John F. Kennedy, there you find a a burial place. Maybe you've said goodbye to a loved one in recent days in which you've you've come to a place of burial. This was to a place of burial for Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that there were people involved here in this burial. In Luke chapter number 24, you you notice over uh, in verse number uh, 8, and they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. These people were partaking of this losing of Jesus Christ and his burial. But two people stand out in particular that are named. One is Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy man. He was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That's the Supreme Court of the Jews. He was a disciple of Jesus, but we're told he was kind of a secret disciple. Maybe you claim to be a disciple, but you're in secret. The Bible says that the fear of man, it brings a snare. God's not calling for anyone to be in his secret service. And God's calling us to be ambassadors for Christ. Now Jesus died on the cross and the cross has a way of doing something to people. We sing the song at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. Something happened at that cross when Jesus died and Joseph comes and he asks if he could take the body of Jesus and place Jesus' body into his personal tomb. Now Joseph was a wealthy man. We stepped into this tomb and we saw that there were places where several in his family could be buried. Now this was a borrowed tomb. It had not been used. Jesus was being placed in a borrowed tomb. By the way, he didn't need anything else. He's only going to be there for a few days. Joseph, he asked Pilate and requests the body and, and, and he receives that. But not only was Joseph there, but we're told Nicodemus was there. Three times in the Bible, Nicodemus is found in John chapter 3, John chapter 7, John chapter 19. Maybe when when Joseph received boldness to come out of hiding. A lot of people are coming out of the closet these days for all kinds of wicked reasons. It'd be great for God's people to come out of the closet as a disciple of Jesus. 
Joseph came out and he made himself vulnerable that he is now identifying himself with Jesus. And maybe it did something to Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, I want to help as well. There's something about boldness, what it does for others. And we find that Joseph and Nicodemus, they lovingly took down the body of Jesus. They washed with tenderness that body, cleaning it. Maybe tears fell from their faces onto that, that body, that lifeless body. The Bible says they took some linen clothes, which was customary way of burying. And in those in the folds of that cloth, they put a number of spices, almost a hundred pounds in weight of these beautiful, fragrant spices. That's the way they buried people. And that's the way they buried the Lord Jesus. Then we're told they took a, a stone and they rolled it in front of the tomb. Now this tomb of Jesus no longer has that stone. But we did see tombs that had that stone off to the side of what it would have looked like. And this tomb was to be watched by the Roman soldiers 24 hours a day. It was as if the whole weight of the authority, the military might of Rome and the empire was leaning against that tomb. It's as if all the machinery, the religious bureaucracy of Jerusalem was pushing against that stone. It's as if all the demons of hell gathered together at that stone to stand to see that Jesus Christ is indeed dead and he's buried. Not only is it a place of burial, I want you to see with me this morning, it's a place of battle. The tomb was a place of battle. Jesus had been in a battle for some time. For thousands of years, he was battling for your soul. Jesus personally went through some battles. Remember when he was born? Remember Herod put out a decree, we're going to kill all these little boys, baby boys, in hopes of exterminating Jesus Christ? He didn't win. We find that Jesus, he was tempted by Satan in the garden. Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Three times Satan came at Jesus Christ. And by the way, if he's willing to come at Jesus, he'll come at you. And Jesus won that battle in the garden. He didn't succumb to the temptation of Satan. Had he done so, he would have never come out of that tomb. Jesus was in a battle in the Garden of Gethsemane a week ago on a Monday. We were able to pray in the same garden where Jesus prayed. He said to his disciples, his three, would you come and pray with me? Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Three times Jesus prayed that God would allow, if there be any other possible way, nevertheless, thy will be done. And Jesus sweat under such agony. His soul was so heavy that he sweat and blood came out of the capillaries of his head because he was in a battle for your soul. And Jesus was in a battle on the cross. He was fulfilling prophecy. And here at the tomb, there was a battle. See, Jesus had been running in this battle with the devil for a long time. In an art gallery in Europe hangs a painting. It's titled, Check Mate. It's an astounding painting. I've seen it. On one side of a chessboard sits the devil. 
full of laughter. His hand is poised. He's ready to make the next move. On the other side of the chessboard sits a shaking, frightened young man. Sweat covers his forehead, dripping down and mixing with a solitary tear on his cheek. The game is obviously drawing to a close and the winner appears to have already been decided. One day a chess champion, he visited from afar off that art gallery. Naturally, the painting was very special to him and he took and made a, gave his attention and examined it for a very long time. Checkmates the name of the painting. Because it is showing that this young man, he has no other move. The devil is putting him into checkmate and his soul would be forever lost. This chess champion is studying. In fact, while others moved throughout the gallery, he stood there gazing at this painting. And then he sat there watching the devil and seeing that the devil had no pressure on him. He looks over at this young man on the other side whose soul would be lost in the very next move. And this chess champion stands there minutes, turns into hours as he studies the board from every possible angle. The sweat on the young man's forehead urged this chess champion to continue he couldn't get away. He was mesmerized. Finally, as the gallery was about to close this chess champion, he found a man who worked there, one of the workers at the gallery, and he said, Sir, by any chance, do you have an actual chess board in pieces? They searched the closets and they found one. And the chess champion laid out the board at the base of the painting, precisely matching what was on the painting. He then looked at it and he began to make a move. And then he would counter that move in the only way that the devil could counter it. He would then make another move and he countered it again knowing that the devil would have to defend himself in his next move. The chess champion, he did this several more times putting the devil in the defense each and every time. And after a moment, after hours of studying this, eventually a loud yell was heard throughout the gallery as the chess champion cried out, I did it! I did it! I did it! Turning to the painting, the chess champion lowered his voice and he looked at that young sweating man and he said, young man, your enemy miscalculated. A very important move. I uncovered it. And as a result, you don't have to lose. You win. I want to remind you what this chess champion discovered was that he didn't have to be checkmate by the devil. Throughout this history of this battle, Satan appears to be on the move and, and, and ready to checkmate the human race in your soul. But he's miscalculated. Let me give you the brief rundown of this battle. It all began when God made and created the angels. Long before he created man. And somewhere, Satan, the most beautiful, the anointed angel, Lucifer, he rebelled against God and he took one third of the angels and was kicked out of heaven in rebellion. 
God countered that move by creating man. In his own image, a little lower than the angels, Satan rebelled against that move by enticing Adam and Eve to sin and turning control of the earth over to him. God then countered Satan's move by providing a redemptive covering so that Adam and Eve could come back into fellowship with God. Satan made his next move by inciting Cain to kill Abel. What that did was cut off the godly line by which redemption would come. But God responded to Satan's move through the birth of Seth. Making a way for men, the Bible says in Genesis 5, to call upon God once again. Satan countered that move by the Tower of Babel and creating a, in people's minds thinking we can make our own way to get to God. For God's next move, he called out a man by the name of Abraham, calling him out of a nation to be holy and set apart from God. The Bible tells us that Satan countered that move by trapping the nation of Israel and putting them into Egypt under Pharaoh's rule. But God grabbed Moses and Midian and placed him in position to knock Pharaoh out of the equation altogether. And throughout the Old Testament, you find God move and Satan would rebel. Then God would move and Satan would counteract. And then you come to the end of the Old Testament, four hundred years of silence. Both are sitting on each side of that chessboard of life. And then we find the New Testament opens up and God reaches down for a very special piece. It's his own son, Jesus Christ. And he moves him into a new location from heaven down to earth. Satan goes to counter God's move by tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus overcomes Satan's move by declaring, it is written, the authority of the word of God. Satan miscalculated. Satan tries and thinks he's going to move Jesus into checkmate by orchestrating the crucifixion. But he miscalculated something very important. And that is... Death on the cross was not a checkmate move. In fact, dying on the cross was the setup for the final move that God would make to checkmate Satan when he would raise Jesus from the dead. The ultimate winner of this game has been decided 2,000 years ago. Victory has been secured when Jesus came out of the grave. While you and I are here upon this earth, still in play, we need to live in light of the truth. Jesus is alive and take the victory that he's provided. Because of that decisive move by God, Satan no longer has authority over you to defeat you if you're God's child. If you're not a child of God, you might be religious or you may claim to have no confidence in the God of the Bible. Either way, until you recognize you don't have to lose your soul separated from God for an eternity. God loves you. He died for you. He was buried for you. He was resurrected for you. But he will not save you against your choice. You must make the choice yourself. But you must see, you must understand so that you must decide you want God's victory in your life. It was a battle, a battle raging. 
I want you to see last of all this morning, the tomb, it's a place of blessing. It's also a place of blessing. Why? Because it's empty. It's an empty tomb. There are people who tend on Easter, which I'm not quite sure why there's a bunny and there's eggs involved in that. I don't mind the chocolate so much, but I don't understand how that kind of got in there except to distract us from the main thing. But when people go looking for those eggs, they don't want them to be empty. But I want to tell you, when we looked into that tomb, we were glad it's still empty. When they went to go to that tomb just a, a few days after he was placed in it, they said it's empty. It's a blessing because it's empty. Listen, we live and die. Jesus died and lived. The resurrected Lord. What is stopping you from the blessings of the tomb? Just as the stone was rolled away from Christ's tomb, you may have some stones in your life that need to be rolled away. Our stones don't cover an entrance of a tomb in Jerusalem, but stones in our life, in our path, block us. The boulders may block us from employment, from companionship, from health, getting out of addiction. We face insurmountable obstacles of debt, divorce, drunkenness, depression. God wants to roll that stone away from your life. People have bills they can't pay, grades they can't make, people they can't please, pornography they cannot resist, a past that they cannot shake, and a future that they cannot face. And Jesus wants you to know the blessing of an empty tomb. The truth is that in and of ourselves, None of us are strong enough to roll these stones away. We cannot. You come at it from any angle you choose. Whatever tools you wish, you can't budge it. You can't get over it. You can't get around it. You can't move it, not even an inch. But Jesus can. Jesus can do for you what he did for Mary and, and Peter and James and Thomas and John. Their lives were forever changed because the rolled stone was, uh, was taken away from the, 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 uh, the entrance of the tomb. The stone represented their fears and failures of Jesus' closest friends. His resurrection powerfully and personally impacted the lives of those who knew him and loved him. The tomb was open and empty. We read that in verses 1 through 12. Let me mention this too. If you want to go and read the chapter someday, and here's what you're going to find. The tomb was open and empty. That's verses 1 through 12 of Luke 24. Because the tomb was open and empty, in verses 13 through 27, we find that the scriptures were open. The word of God was open and fulfilled. Sometimes people say, I don't get anything out of the Bible. That's because you've not gotten anything from the empty tomb. The eyes were opened and they recognized in verses 28 through 35. Minds were opened and they believed in verses 36 through 49. And in the end of the chapter, we're told that the heaven was opened and Jesus ascended back into heaven. Over 500 people saw him, over 500 witnesses. As I reflect on resurrection, Resurrection Sunday, there's a few observations I want to make as I close. 
When I think about the resurrection, it reminds me, number one, God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. Don't ever think sin is outdated. Not in this modern, psychologized world in which we live. Sin, God always takes. You want to know how serious God looks at sin? You just look at the cross. With that cat of nine tails, a whip that had nine strands with interwoven pieces of metal and bone. Medical doctors have examined that for years and they've concluded that based upon how the victims and history tells us how the victims were punished with that, what Jesus would have have experienced, he would have had as a result of those 39 strokes from the Roman soldier times nine lashes for every stroke, he would have had over a thousand needed stitches in his body just from the lacerations alone. You want to see how serious he takes your sin? You look at the cross. When they put these railroad sized spikes through his hands and feet, a crown of thorns plunged onto the most sensitive part of his brow. Blood flowed constantly. God takes sin very serious. The cross is God's definitive statement on how serious he takes sin. Not the sin of somebody else, but the sin of yours and the sin of mine. Another thought. I think of the resurrection and all that that entails. The cross, the burial, and the resurrection. It not only tells me that God takes sin seriously, but it also tells me God will go to any length to save people. God will go to any length to save your soul. Christy sang the song before I stood up to preach. I'm so glad that he found me to be worth it. I don't think I was and I am not. But I'm thankful that God thought I was. God would go to any length. If you could ever measure how far the throne room of heaven is to the cross, you'll see that God went a great distance. If you can measure the distance, you might better understand the lengths that God would go through for you. A third thought. Not only does God take sin so serious, not only will God go to any length to save people, but number three, no evil is too great for God to overcome. No sin, no stronghold, no problem, no debt, no divorce, no amount of drunkenness, no depression, no discouragement. Nothing is too great for God to overcome. Every power of Satan and his sinister legions was fully unleashed to ensure that Christ would no longer be engaged in human affairs. Death had never surrendered a captive, yet after three days, Christ burst forth from the tomb and decisively defeated humanity's most lethal enemies. If we could grasp the enormity of what happened on that resurrection Easter morning, we would be forever undaunted by any hardship we face. Nothing is too hard for my God. Nothing is too hard for Jesus. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Number four, 
It's a place of blessing, the resurrection, empty tomb, because Christians need not fear death. See, before Easter, funerals were miserable affairs. People wept bitterly because they didn't have hope that they would see their loved ones again. Hear me. You'll live as long as God lives somewhere. Either with God or separated from God. Someone says, if God is so loving, why would he say no to me coming to heaven? Wrong question. God is so loving for God so loved the world. So why would you say no to Jesus? Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Mentioned we were just there in Israel and there in Jerusalem and there and we saw many of the sites. In order to get there, we had to get on a plane. In order to get on that plane, we had to have made preparations. No one's going to get on the plane without having purchased a ticket or having a possession of a ticket. And no one's going to take their last breath and spend an eternity with God, no matter how sincere, no matter how good you might be. No one can get on the plane and fly from Atlanta to Tel Aviv because of how sincere, how good you might be. You must make the proper preparations and the proper preparations to get into God's heaven is recognizing I need to be saved. I didn't say church member. A church can't wash your sins away. I didn't say get baptized. You can drink the baptismal water. It's not going to wash your sins away. Only the blood of Jesus will. You must take the gift of salvation like you took the gift at Christmas. You took the gift at your birthday. You take it and you say thank you. You must take the gift of eternal life. Salvation is not something. Salvation is someone. His name is Jesus. And when you do that, you can experience the hope. I don't have to fear death. I was reading recently that those who will die in a fire, it's like a, 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 the statistic is like one out of 1.5 million chances you'll die in a fire. Dying by, by uh, uh, drowning is one out of, and it's a huge number. But here's what I do know. Your chances of dying is one out of one. It is appointed unto man once to die after this, the judgment. The Bible teaches us you don't get a do-over. You are not primarily created a body. You are primarily created a soul that is within your body. However, we tend to live for what our body wants. Your body is only temporary. Your soul will live forever. The greatest decision you'll ever make is what will you do with Jesus? You tell me what you do with Jesus and the Bible declares what he will do with you. If you've come here to church, you're religious in some people's minds. But you don't get into heaven because of religion. You only get to heaven because of having a real relationship with Jesus. There were many who say, I can't get saved because if I do, I can't live it. Good news is he never told you to live it. Of course you can't live it. He never expected you to live it. He came out of the grave so he can move inside and so that he can live through you. You'll die and go to hell because you don't think you can live it. That's what the devil wants. 
He can't do anything to keep you out of heaven but lie to you and he'll tell you you're not good enough. Of course you're not good enough. He'll tell you you can't keep it. Of course you can't keep it. He'll tell you you can't live it. Of course you can't live it. But Jesus can. Jesus can give it. Jesus will keep you. Jesus will live through you. It is Jesus. It's all Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Let me give you a last thought. Here's what's the blessing about the grave is that God's people. When you realize sin is my problem, hell is the consequence, Jesus is the answer. I don't want my sin. I don't want to go to hell. I need Jesus. You become a child of Almighty God. What happens then is, here's the fifth blessing. I have hope. I have hope. See, Resurrection Sunday, it celebrates victory over humanity's worst enemy. If Satan, death, and hell cannot defeat me, then I don't have anything to fear. Oh, who can come against me? The Bible says I'm more than a conqueror and so are you if you're a child of God. See, Jesus moved that stone away. The stone was not rolled away, by the way. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let us in. To help us to see there's blessing that's found in Jesus. Jesus is still wanting to move some stones around and away from your life. Whatever challenges you face, whatever boulders block your path, whether it's discouragement, doubt, depression, divorce, debt, drunkenness, fear, failure, betrayal, rejection, or even death, Jesus can move the stone away. He stands ready to move yours if you'll surrender to Him. Now let me ask you. If you take your last breath right now or five years from now, are you right now 100% certain all of your sins are gone, that you have eternal life, God's credited righteousness of Jesus to your account? If not, you're playing Russian roulette with your soul. Let me remind you, you don't buy fire insurance after the house is burnt down. You don't get automobile insurance after you total the vehicle. And you don't get a do-over after you've taken your last breath. God's good to you. He loves you. He died for you 2,000 years ago. You were on His mind when He hung on your cross. And you sit here this morning with an opportunity to receive a gift of eternal life that leads you to a relationship with Jesus. It's your choice What will you do? Heads bowed and eyes closed.